Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hey, look, I'm recording. Hey, Sarah. Hello, Rebecca. What's news? It gets so much news. It's summer. It is officially summer. How did that happen? I'm not sure, but I actually broke a sweat for the first time in eight months, and it was glorious. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I smelled that sweat. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> All the way here at the museum. <laughs> okay, changing topics. Okay. We got a show for you. It's a good show, and we explore some behind-the-scenes secret lives of some of our favorite favorite humans. Picture me with the boahaha finger taps. When we conceived of this idea and we brought it to Don specifically, it was like, you want me to do what now? I think he still had that face at the end of it, actually. But it's so much fun. People have backstories and lives and experiences that they bring when they come to volunteer, come to work at the museum. The multiple layers of a human out there that you only know one compartment of who they are and they've lived all these other lives. And it's not until you get into a conversation with them that you realize that you actually have this multifaceted human in front of you and they have some really fascinating stories to tell. And that's what I love about local history is that uh, there's so many local stories that spider web out and you might have a connection between people in Turkey that are now living in Minnesota, in Anoka County. Speaking of Turkey. Yeah. There actually comes up in the episode. I, I maybe did that on purpose. Perhaps. Yeah. Ooh. We should also say who this episode is with. <laughs> we mentioned Don. So Don is a staff member here at the Anoka County Historical Society. He questions what his job title is in the episode, and we would like to call him Digitizer Extraordinaire at this point for the record. Excellent. Perfect. Who's the other voice? He will be talking to Allison Schmidt, who's a board member. And uh, they both have lives that intersect in archaeology and traveling the world and discovering things. And something called geophysics. Yes. Don, in his past life, was a geophysicist, and we realized editing this together that he never defined what that was. So, for you right now, a geophysicist is someone who studies the Earth using gravity, magnetic, electrical, and seismic methods. That, that's a little dull. Uh, that translates into, he owned his own ground-penetrating radar, so he could do the whole CSI archaeology thing, looking underneath the earth for things. When we had an archaeology grant, he donated his time and his big machine to go walking one of the cemeteries in Ramsey and find out where exactly the people were actually buried so we have a better map of the cemetery. Now. Potentially buried. He could only figure out where potential bodies were. The only way you can find out if there were bodies is to dig. Who says we did Yep, we didn't. <laughs> Never get to have any fun. 
Actually, they talk about the ethics of digging up bodies as well. Should we just jump into the episode before we repeat the entire episode? I think that is a solid plan. All right, see you on the flip side. Oh, uh, little Easter eggs before we jump in. I didn't quite get Rebecca's voice out of it. So if you listen carefully, you will hear her voice for just a millisecond. And then you can also hear Allison's dog, Murphy. Murphy. Okay, hey Allison, good seeing you again. Hadn't seen you since the cemetery tour on Sunday. It sure was. What a great day. It's it always sure fun was. standing around a cemetery talking with friends, right? <laughs> Nothing beats it. Allison, you want to go first? Okay. Hello, my name is Allison Schmidt. I am a board member for the board of directors here at the Anoka County Historical Society, and I chair the Define Identity Committee. I have a degree in archaeology, a degree in history, which focuses on the ancient Middle East, and a minor in French. It's kind of my background, archaeology-wise, anyways. I'm Don Johnson. Uh, I'm not quite sure what my title is anymore here at the Historical Society. I've been here I don't know, 17 or 18 years now, part-time. And currently, most of my time is spent with photography and digitizing and scanning. I never expected to get into archaeology, although it was always kind of a fantasy because it just sounded like a fun thing to do. But my background is uh, got a bachelor's degree in geophysics, went, then spent three years in the Army. And rather than spend three years in the basement of a big building doing programming, after I got out of the Army, I went back and got the master's degree in geophysics. So really no other background other than that. Of course, the geophysics background also includes uh, some geology, which I did not excel in. The common thread that I see here, and just to throw this out, is that when people think of archaeology, they think about Indiana Jones and finding the gold and bringing it home and like, <laughs> like troll goblin dwarves in their kingdom castle ivory tower, telling all the lowlies about their magical treasures that they found on this wild adventure. But really what it is, is a complex system of diverse intellectual backgrounds that come together to help explain who we are and where we're going. There's so many different things we can do with it. Like even I went to school, like I want to be an archaeologist. I'm not an archaeologist, but I use everything I learned in school for archaeology in my job, and it gives me an advantage over other people. World of archaeology is not just one discipline. There are archaeologists, there's anthropologists, one of the guys that I worked with a lot was a archaeopaleobotanist, or was it a paleoarchaeobotanist? Yeah. <laughs> I could never figure that one out. And then, of course, there's the uh, uh, geomorphologist, geologist. So everybody has their own part that they play in the overall understanding of 
whatever kind of archaeological site or setting or whatever it is that you're trying to uh, work on and, and learn about. And I'm just one, as I say, a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that says geophysics on it. Uh, the work that I did was gathering facts, of course, which is the raw geophysical data, but then there's the interpretation of the data based on uh, our understanding, unfortunately, of what we expect to find. So we skew our interpretation to what we think is going to be there. And uh, then I'll then I give that to whoever my client was at the time, and they might not go back there for a year or two. So yeah, it's in some cases not surprising that I never heard back from it. Once they got what I gave them, then they would be dealing with it sort of similarly themselves. They go, well, these are the facts as Don sees them. Now we have to start doing our work and uh, designing our work based on what we think we're going to find. Mm -hmm. It's also like you only collect the facts you know to look for. And so a mm -hmm. lot of the, we save everything, you know, in, in archives. And so we can go back and do, you know, like pot lipid analysis and look for different things that we didn't think we could look for. But that stuff that I was talking about with the dirt underneath the pot shirt in a midden matrix, you're not going to find the pollen underneath that pot if you're not collecting that soil and looking for it. So if you don't know what's there, you don't know what you're not finding. And then once you take it out, it's gone. And so you can lose stuff that way. But then also your implementing a lens once you do get those facts you're putting the lens of your experiences and your knowledge and the people and the um even though you're working with other disciplines you are limiting your interpretation to those disciplines so a lot of times archaeologists will um visit different conferences for disciplines that they're not familiar with working with. And a lot of new ideas come out of that, um, like the ideas surrounding um, the collapse of the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean looks like it happened because of climatological changes. They didn't think of that or realize that until they started going to climatological conferences. And they were talking about stuff that happened during that time frame. And then it was like a light bulb went off. No one had thought of that or um, talking to local indigenous groups. Um, one example I can think of is, well, it's kind of a joke in archeology span that it's um, ceremonial. And I think maybe Don can uh, speak to that as well. The, the archeological thing is be like, I don't know what it is. So it's ceremonial. Um, you, you've, read the, you've read the book, uh, Motel of Mysteries? <laughs> no. Oh, <laughs> I haven't. But the one I'll, thing I'll have, to, like, I'll have to loan you my copy of it. It's exactly what you described uh, is sort of a in the future type of archaeological excavation at a motel. And they're even finding religious significance to the pointed end of the roll of toilet paper. Yes. Yes. Because they don't understand it. Therefore, it must be. <laughs> It must uh, be ceremonial. Ceremonial, yes. Yeah, an archaeologist, like when I die, I'm going to put this in my casket. So when an archaeologist finds it in 200 years, they can wonder what the heck we were worshiping. Um, 
And <laughs> the one true to life anecdote that I'm aware of is in ancient Egypt, they're excavating all of these ancient mud brick houses. And there's these um, circular rings within the home. And they're not very tall, just a couple inches tall. And then it's like regular four level inside and outside. And so they couldn't figure out what it was. And they thought it was for some kind of religious ceremony or something. And then they walked to the local village and the people still have these circles in their houses and they have the chickens in there. So they bring the baby chicks into the house. The chicks aren't tall enough to get over the thing. It keeps the chicks safe, but the hen can go in and out. <laughs> so like that's the one <laughs> I'll never forget that example like talk to the local people before you come to any conclusions <laughs> sometimes that data collection is the most fun though <laughs> well I got paid to travel around the world at someone else's expense so I can't complain about that at all but there's a uh, so little found uh, at these sites compared to what you would find in Europe, for instance. You probably were doing archaeology with almost a backhoe up there. If like they would start with that, and then um, yeah, there's a lot more material stuff. It depends on what age you're looking at, I suppose. Um, and with the Roman stuff, there's a lot of material culture, but with the Gallo, and you know, maybe it's more similar to Native American, but they're not trained to look for that stuff, the soil color variations and um, tread patterns in the dirt and stuff like that. So like um, one thing you'd see a lot, I did my field school in England. Um, and so it's, you have walls and iron nails and glass that you're fine all the time. Um, and then one thing that they would always kind of harp on at school was when you do archaeology here, you have to look for changes in the soil for different reasons and to map out the site. And so a lot of the students that they train here go over to Europe and they found find way more stuff at these sites than what the European archaeologists are finding because they aren't trained to look for that stuff because they have so much material stuff, they're not looking past the material stuff. And it's not that it's not there, it's just different. But uh, uh, very different approaches, but it's the difference between having the monumental type structures versus uh, barely any evidence left in the ground that you have to see with uh, just color changes or texture changes in the soil, which mm -hmm. uh, using a backhoe would not be a good way to do that. Right. <laughs> That's why it's immoral to dig an entire site now, right? Not that it always was, that, but um, archaeology by nature is a destructive thing. And science is always changing. And what we know is always changing. And someone can come at something with a different perspective that maybe they didn't consider before. Um, different theories they approach things with. So if say like they didn't use to collect the dirt that was underneath a pot shirt and take it back and save some of it or rinse it through, but underneath pot shirts, like in a, if you're looking at a midden, which is like a garden uh, garbage pit and the pot shirt is there, 
you can lift it up and take the dirt layer underneath the pot shirt and bring it back and look at it under the microscope for um, different, I'm not gonna remember what they're called because it's not my specialty, right? Archaeology is many specialties, but someone with plant knowledge can look at that and see the different pollens that are underneath that pot shirt in the dirt because they blow in the breeze and then they get trapped in the soil. And plants have this stuff in their stems that's silica and it's distinct to different plant species. And that stuff will end up under there. And then you can take this little thing of dirt from underneath this pot shirt back to the lab, look under, under a microscope, and they can be like, oh, this midden was created in the fall because there's this kind of pollen. And you're like, cool beans. Whereas before I had, <laughs> you know, a hole in the ground and a pot shard. And I'm like, look at my pot. And now because we took the time to take that soil, we know that it was at, inhabited at this time of the year, that that was put in there. And then you can map that across the site based off of your different things and plot them to figure out when that site was like inhabited throughout. Was it all year? Was it part of the year? Was it during the spring when they were collecting this plant? And you can do the same thing with like the pot shirt itself. You can grind, like break it in half or whatever, take a little chunk off so it's like fresh inside and then take some of that material and you can test it for different lipids um, and figure out what they were cooking in. But uh, this, that's, uh, of course, one of the uh, benefits of, I always said, you got to do the geophysics first before you get out there and do anything else, because then you could do a more surgical excavation. You'd know where things were, and you wouldn't have to just go hit and miss and cover a much bigger area to, to, to find anything. Mm -hmm. you know, we were at, uh, uh, where were we? Uh, oh, my mind is blank. Um, a site in northern New Mexico, uh, Aztec Ruins National Monument. And uh, they wanted to move one of the roads because the traffic was destroying by vibration some of the buildings there. So they wanted to move the road through a nearby field, but they wanted to know what was maybe in that field to make sure they weren't going to destroy anything in the process. Or even if they didn't destroy it, they would bury it to make it completely inaccessible. So they wanted to know what they were burying. Um, and we found uh, what looked like the foundations of a building. So it only took a, a one meter by two meter unit to determine, yes, that was the corner of a stone building contemporary with the rest of uh, the Aztec ruins monument. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the head archeologist there was so excited. He says, we knew the road that they used as access came through here. And this is one of the buildings that would have been right beside it where they would collect tribute for people going into the, uh, the place. And it, it didn't take much excavations to learn that. A lot of geophysics maybe, but not a lot of excavation. But most of it is still intact in the ground. Good for future studies. I think they'll have to take some of the road up to do that at this point, but at least they know it's there now. My my goal in life, if my body holds together, is I want to retire and then travel the world as a volunteer archaeologist. Because like, you can just go and they'll be like, yeah, you can dig here for two weeks. I'm like, <laughs> I'm on vacation in Greece. Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> stick me in a hole for a couple of days. Yes. Like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm in Australia. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Turkey. 
uh huh. <laughs> One day. Well, uh, the the thing with I suppose doing archaeology and geophysics is uh, you have to go to where the the work is. You can't bring it home and do it. So you end up doing a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, I I don't know how many miles I've traveled, but at some points I was away from home for 75% of the year kind of thing on projects. So I've done work anywhere from uh, various places in the US, mostly around the Red Wing area, did a lot of cemetery work out east. That was my jobs out there. To, a developer would want to develop properties, but they were right next door to an old, maybe even a family cemetery. And the fence around the any cemeteries was usually wrong. Like a, it was a Boy Scout, Eagle Scout project to clean up the cemetery and fence it in, but there'd still be, because they didn't know it, there'd be still burials outside the cemetery or sometimes just because of space available, they'd put it on the other side of the fence. So we'd have to help find where any other burials were so they could be avoided by any developers. And um, so did a lot of work like that. Uh, worked in Turkey on a project, uh, Chattelhuyuk or however you say it. Yes. Are you kidding me? No, I worked there too. Dad, stop. <laughs> you worked there. That, that was a fascinating site. I'm fangirling. Hey, let me fan myself just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited, Don. I want pictures. I want. <laughs> yeah, but, but you've been to Hadrian's Wall, and I've never seen that. <laughs> Don, Don. Okay, I do know the significance of Chalukyuk, though. It's supposed to be one of the, or if not the world's oldest city, because it was organized as streets and buildings uh, ten thousand years ago. In, in a city structure. So yeah, that's it's an important place. Mm -hmm. I might not still be the oldest, but let's say top 10. Been long understood to be like the oldest and you know, there's always room for improvement, right? But like super famous, like um, the archeologists that found it, super famous. I can't remember his name right now because, but, um, if you know archaeology, you know Chateau Hayuk. I mean, have you ever had to uh, work at a site where you were likely to find burials? It's such a touchy subject. It, it can be. It depends on the audience completely, I think. Um, um, I've never worked at a site where it was like, we're going to find burials. Um, there was that one that was found inadvertently. Um, but when it was clear what it was, like there was precedent and understanding as to the situation in which that body came to arrive there. Um, and I've never, I, I wasn't involved with any exhumation or anything. Um, I, don't know personally if I would feel comfortable doing that um, regardless, but it would have to be like, if I did, 
you know, obviously you treat them with revenance and I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I was asked to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think the answer is yeah. complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, there, there are no simple answers to anything. <laughs> it does. I don't, I wouldn't say that, like, I went to school explicitly for archaeology, like, that was my goal. We did not get ethics training. Um, I did take a class on regulations, and that's not to say that it wasn't sprinkled in where, you know, like, unethical to dig the whole site because blah, 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 like, kind of like what I talked about before. Um, and the importance of working with tribal communities and, you know, there's a thippo and a shippo for a reason, like, um, so, and the regulations that go or are involved with communicating with all parties, um, really the emphasis is on open lines of communication and, um, integrity and, so like maintaining the integrity of the site, the integrity of the information, the integrity of the story, whose story, but we didn't have any ethics training, I would say. I sure didn't, <laughs> but I wouldn't call myself unethical either, but. Uh... I know the, the projects I was on in the Red Wing area, the um, local uh, uh, tribal groups were very interested in what we were doing and it was done in coordination and cooperation with them. We couldn't just go there and do any work without their approval. And uh, they, they'd come by to visit every now and then and chat and- Yeah, open, open and honest. Yep, exactly right. Although if we had found any treasure in the Philippines, we might not have been too open about that. Uh. <laughs> I think part of our um, one class, we were asked, like, if you were doing a test pit, like if you're doing a survey and you have to do a one meter by one meter test pit or like a shovel test, yeah, you know, okay, yeah. Um, and so you're out walking the line and you're doing your shovel pits by yourself or that usually there's one other person with you and you guys find like um a hidden stash of coins or something what do you do what would you do and it wasn't like part of the class but it was it was brought up for some reason like it wasn't an activity or something the question was posed you and one other person or you yourself are out in the middle of nowhere by yourself doing a shovel test you find a gold bullion coin what do you do and obviously for like, you would log it as I found this here. Like I found a Spanish bullion coin, like, <laughs> but not everyone would do that. They would save it and sell it for gold or, you know, sell it to museum, what have you. And so like, it was an interesting question and I totally actually forgot about it until just now. Yeah, I bet everybody would <laughs> uh, respond differently to that. Uh... It's kind of that collective, oh. <laughs> fortunately for most of us no such thing ever happened right for as much as you see archaeologists finding gold on tv i can uh <laughs> mm -hmm. but i mean we just doing field walking even in the 
Red Wing area, we'd find some really nice uh, polished stone, um, call them axe heads for lack mm -hmm. of a better term for it. And yeah, you go, hey, that's pretty cool. And you drop it back uh, where you found it. You flag it so that maybe if whoever's in charge of that project can map it, if they want to put it on their map. But uh, if I suppose part of it's if you ever got caught sticking anything in your pocket, you'd never work again. But it, it's really doesn't even come down to that. It's just the right thing to do to not take anything. Mm -hmm. There's also like um, one thing people might not consider is like hobby flint napping. Um, a modern flint nap makes the same debitage as one 10,000 years ago. Flint napping is the process used to create stone tools out of a silicate based stone material. And um, they use silicate based materials because they have um, conoidal fractures, they break predictably. And that breaking down, that reductive process, um, the step in the process you're using uses different tools and creates different sizes of flakes, which is debitage. So you can look at the kind of debitage you're finding to figure out what process in the stone making they were. So if you're somewhere and you're finding lots of tiny debitage of, um, silicate material flint that is not near other flint you can tell they were like refining a piece or if you have a lot of bigger flakes they were breaking down a core or you know whatever to make something so you can kind of tell some of that stuff you can tell like air like points too um, you can tell if they've been reworked or broken and reworked or used and mm -hmm. reworked because they're no longer symmetrical. And so if you're learning how to flint nap or you find it and you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. Ha, ha, ha. Look, I made this like an archaeologist isn't going to be able to tell the difference. It's the same. So like pick up your debitage. <laughs> Or, or do it inside a building. Don't go to a site and then do it in the middle of it and say, hey, I made this and it looks just like the thing we found over here. Yeah. No, stop. <laughs> there was someone, I think it was who, one of my professors did, they were doing an excavation actually at a site and she mapped out where she was finding the debitage and where like she found other parts of like whatever I don't remember but when they mapped out the debitage they were able to figure out that the guy was leaning against a tree flint napping and <laughs> uh -huh. could see the stuff so like if you take the time to like do that you get it tells a story oh yeah absolutely although I've heard it as uh, a lot of the distribution is because uh some kid was given these things to play with, some little infant, and then he'd move them all out of his reach. So there'd be this circle or semicircle of artifacts with a, nothing in the middle. And, and it was the, the kid. Yeah. Or <laughs> with like, his dad's stuff or something, his debitage and his flakes. And <laughs> <laughs> there's always like nice products that you find and then like crappy things uh -huh. it's like oh you know that's from a lesser culture or blah 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 but like how do people learn though 
Like, where are the artifacts people use to learn with? I don't know. Like, how do you do archaeology of development, like, for, you know, a person? And what does that look like? And not not everybody uh, starts out as a qualified um, uh, pot maker or basket maker. And it, they, they make some bad stuff, some of them. Archaeology is so cool and interesting, and we barely scratched the surface. So are, are, are you still going to be working in archaeology, Allison? Or are you out of it now? Or I am paid too much. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lifestyle that must be maintained. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you suggesting there's not enough money in archaeology? Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I gave it a shot. I learned a lot. I had amazing experiences. I have cool cocktail party facts. And you know, it gave me the soft and the hard skill combo. I need to excel at my job. And it's part, I credit it like 90% with why I have the job and the job trajectory that I do now. So you, you got into it different than I did. You started out in archaeology and I ended up in archaeology. I started out in anything. I never figured I would ever do archaeology type work. And that's what I spent the last uh, 20 years doing. And I'm glad I did. It was a lot of fun. I'm also, mm -hmm. like I say, happy to be retired from it. But it's <laughs> a lot of great memories and uh, great experiences. Awesome. And people still ask me if I found many dinosaur bones, thinking that that's what archaeologists look for. If I had a dollar <laughs> for the time my aunt sent me things about that gym guy that does paleontology. <laughs> well, it was kind of fun chatting with you, Allison, because I'm kind of remembering all these stories that I hadn't even thought about for so long. And if we had more time, I could just keep going and going and going with stories. But uh, <laughs> you probably wouldn't be that interested, I wouldn't think. Says you. <laughs> I've definitely had a blast chatting. And I can't wait to scratch your brain and see what else you got going on in there that you can share. And it's always fun to, you know, scratch my own brain about this stuff and don't get to talk about it very often, but it's so interesting and it's so much fun. And I just love getting other people interested in archaeology. So I'm just so excited to be able to, to talk about this stuff with you. Well, thanks. I, I, I enjoyed it too. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, my name is Diana Nurberg. I'm a librarian for Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. Listen on for some great discoveries regarding archaeology. First, we have Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, 100 Discoveries That Changed the World, edited by Ann R. Williams. This National Geographic Illustrated Guide to the Top Archaeological Discoveries to Date offers short chronological summaries. It also features an introduction written by fiction and nonfiction author Douglas Preston, who writes about archaeology for the New Yorker magazine. Next, we have The Lost City of the Monkey God, A True Story by Douglas Preston. 
This is the nail-biting true account of the author's accompaniment on a scientist-led expedition into the Honduran rainforest. The team, armed with state-of-the-art technology, was in search of a legendary lost civilization that promised both tremendous wealth and deadly illness. Next we have Cries from the Lost Island by Kathleen O'Neill Gear, a young, budding historical scholar's friend who believes she is the reincarnated Queen Cleopatra, is found murdered. The protagonist, Hal, and his only other friend, Roberto, set off to Egypt to fulfill her last request, to search for the lost graves of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. The author expertly blends modern-day life with ancient Egyptian imagery. You can find these and so much more from your local Anoka County Library. Until next time, happy learning! Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. This is just a prerequisite. I always have to say this. This episode was so hard to edit. <laughs> this was a major Frankensteining effort on Sarah's part here. Uh, I had the conversation with Don and Allison, which I think was an hour in and of itself, and we were having this great conversation and I was asking questions, but the goal was to not have my voice in the episode. Because we hear you too much. We do hear me too much. Stop saying I talk too much. And then we had a follow-up conversation, which had a lot of great information in it. And and so you had to overlay the two together. And where does that now live, Sarah? So the whole thing ended up being an hour and 20 minutes or something. And so the full thing lives on the vault if you want to listen to the whole conversation. $5 a month on subscription. And Don tells more stories about his time on different digs, including um, his time in Turkey, and uh, some tips and tricks if you were ever bringing your geophysicist equipment through airports. Spoiler alert. If you have a Samsonite, it'll come in really, really handy. And we were not sponsored for that ad. Do you have anything to dig up out of your garden right now, Sarah? Uh, I have to put in some tomatoes. Can I tell? Uh, yesterday, Darcy came in the house with a carrot. And we're not sure if this is last year's carrot that wintered over, or if it was last year's carrot that seeded itself in, or if it's this year's carrot that we forgot about. There's already a carrot. And it's in my fridge, and I'm going to eat it. That's not archaeology. Gardenology. We're getting <laughs> a little punchy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, congratulate Rebecca on her carrot the next time you see her. Or, you know, uh, send us a little note on the emails. About the carrot? definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Share <laughs> your carrot story. <laughs> and join us uh, next time. Bye. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anocacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>